0: They offered us $3 million on the spot to basically start a company. And I go, excuse me? And he says, yeah, you heard me. Go call Judy. It's my wife. And tell her that uh, you're quitting your job and you're going to be CEO of The Startup.
1: Welcome to The Startup Defense. Today I have Nathan Mintz. You have an incredible background, so I don't want to ruin this. But can you tell us what your story is and what are you really passionate about right now?
0: You know, I've spent about 20 years in aerospace and defense and electronics. Uh, in particular, spent a lot of time in radar and electronic warfare. After about 13, 14 years at Raytheon and Boeing, I uh, finally answered some of the calls from some of the friends of mine in Silicon Valley who said, Hey, when are you going to start a defense company? We want to throw money at it and formed a company called Epirus, uh, which uh, is now a defense unicorn. They do high power microwave to kill drones. We did that for a couple of years, was founding CEOs and then handed off the, uh, the reins to a professional operator and uh, started another company called uh, Spartan which you know, most of the time we talk about dual-use technologies from a uh, uh, commercial sector to defense and aerospace. This was actually the opposite, where we were taking advanced signal processing techniques and sort of ways of of building and, and uh, operating sensors that were uh, dominant in defense and try to transition them over to commercial applications for automotive radar. That's what Spartan's about, and uh, I've just recently handed the reins of that one off
1: as well. I do want to get into the tech of Spartan because it is interesting bringing radar where normally we'd see LIDAR applications. So the ruggedness and flexibility of radar, you've somehow made that palatable to the commercial market. So that's an interesting conversation. But more broadly, I'd like to explore, and I have so many questions about this because I think that there are thousands, if not tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people that are in your position where you are at Raytheon or at the primes and they're thinking man I'd like to go start a business or I've seen the gaps that are in the market that aren't really something that Boeing wants to pursue maybe because the TAM's not large enough or that there's too much of a risk profile to pursue that opportunity or that technology but th- you as this specialist this expert you get the itch right you get the entrepreneur itch the startup itch and you want to jump over and and create something from nothing. So can you tell me a little bit about that story? One from, yeah, why did you do it? Did you see this gap and pursue it? But also just from the human aspect is what did that mental process look like of, I'm going to take this entrepreneurial leap?
0: I had been in my job at Boeing for about five years and uh, I, I kind of had worked myself into an ideal position. I was a almost an internal consultant. I would go around and look at people's various proposals and uh, win themes and strategies and tell them what the competition was going to do and what they were doing wrong. I had some friends from college that had gone into venture capital. And one day, one of them, Joe Onstow, called me up and said, hey, we just had a partner join who's interested in starting defense vertical. Do you have any ideas? And it just happened to be that that morning was when uh, sort of one of the most infamous drone related disaster I wouldn't say disasters, but you know, kind of shutdowns happen in the Gatwick Airport. Uh, in London it was shut down for twenty five hours by a drone that nobody could figure out if it was even there or not. You know, I'd worked a lot on air to air, service to air, v- various systems in a EW and, and weapons and context. And I'm like, well, why is this so hard? Like uh, other than it's low, slow, and small, what's so hard about finding it? And so I went and did a uh, uh, looked up a survey and there were 200 products out there on the market that did counter UAS, and 90% of them were some jammer that somebody built in their garage, and they all seemed to suck. And none of them were very effective against most things. They were sort of point solutions. But there was one solution that kind of stood out to me, and it was a, a family of EMP systems that were being built by you know, Naval Surface Warfare, Sir Dahlgren, et cetera. They took a very high-power microwave beam. Illuminated the uh, uh, the drone with it, and then you know, overwhelmed the electronics, and the drone would cease operating and die effectively. I go, well, that's cool, but these systems are all twenty five million dollars, and they, you know, that they're, they're the size of my house. Like they're not very practical, or certainly not for tactical applications. I go do a little bit of research on what kind of field strengths are required, and I had kind of a background in EMI EMC, a little bit from from my previous work, and looked at what field strengths would probably be required, and I said, okay, well, to keep myself from getting in trouble here, I would need to go basically test empirically what values of energy are going to cause the drones to die. So hooked up with another uh, co-founder of mine, Bo Mar. Bo was also an expert in electronic warfare, and, and I brought up kind of the dilemma, and he said, yeah, I kind of had some of the same thoughts myself. It dawned on us that with gallium nitride chips, which were rising in increasing power density, There may be an opportunity here to do this with solid-state systems. It could be a lot cheaper. So we go to Walmart. We bought like five different types of drones. We take the rotors off of them and just like took a voltage source and went on each chip and saw when it fried. And then based on that, we were able to back into these kind of power levels will cause the drones to cease operating or disrupt their operation. We were able to back into what it was going to take power-wise to do it. From there, we were able to extrapolate to, you know, this is what the system would look like. And it turned out that it was something that was closable, fairly closable, with sort of maybe next generation uh, parts. And so I flew up to San Francisco with that, met with Joe in his office, and they offered us $3 million on the spot to basically start a company. And I go, excuse me? And he says, yeah, you heard me. Go call Judy. It's my wife. And tell her that uh, you're quitting your job and you're going to be CEO of the startup. You kind of look back and say, well, God puts you in certain places for a reason. And sometimes you just need to take a leap of faith and say, well, no matter what happens, uh, this will be a hell of a ride. So let me give it a try. And so did that. Uh, three months later, we had the company put together, quit our jobs at Boeing and Raytheon and started off on three rented desks in El Segundo. From there, you know, scaled the company to where it is today. I got off the boat somewhere between about halfway between Series A and Series B after we'd done about three iterations of a prototype and done all the initial kind of science to prove that narrowband EMP would work. It's operated Pretty well since i I left when it was about forty people now it's about a hundred and eighty people massive contracts. I think Army Richterto gave them a sixty six million dollar contract. I think that's publicly known and a number of DARPA contracts and stuff as well. so very compelling technology and really something that can change the whole paradigm
1: What's great about this story is we see the company now and like you mentioned, it's a unicorn. The technology was absorbed or brought on contract with Northrop. I've seen it in every magazine and trade that I subscribe to, right? Saw the company at Soft Week. So we, it's tempting to see it now. But I was listening to Joe Lonsdale's podcast, and you're talking about building this technology in a co working space and people being a little confused why there's a defense tech startup, you know, where everyone shares desks and how how you know <laughs> that is to your point you went to the store and bought off-the-shelf drones and then took them apart and started testing it wasn't at national labs or using a multi-million dollar facility you didn't start at this place and I, I think that's beguiling for a lot of people is like they they see where the company was instead of how they can get there themselves so Interesting that you had that approach even coming out of, you know, Boeing and Raytheon. So I I worked a
0: lot of early programs when I was at uh, Boeing and Raytheon and kind of like sheet of paper stuff. And one of the mindsets you have to get used to is what is the absolute minimum I need to do to prove the wow factor of this technology or this proposal, the critical technology elements. I think that along with a little bit of encouragement, at one point I did walk into ATC with a five-year plan for oh, in five years, we can have this. And they said, you don't have five years, you have five months. What can you do? Just tell me. And being forced to kind of change your mindset like that to a minimum viable product, agile mindset, where you're constantly iterating what's the next thing I can prove, it allows you to burn down a lot of risk a lot faster. I think that's completely different from the traditional waterfall approach, which is really meant for mature systems. And I think that's where a lot of people get hung up is that I mean, don't get me wrong. I think I think it has its uses for certain things, and by that I'm talking about the systems engineering B, the waterfall approach to engineering. I think that a lot of people get stuck in thinking that that's how you do early development innovation. You don't. I was a requirements lead on on a DARPA program where we had you know 5,000 requirements, and it was. You know, the same boring stuff over and over, repeat over and over again. But the salient technology that was there was okay, make the lightest radar that you possibly can that can operate at high altitude. This was called the ISIS program, something I worked on at Raytheon early in my career. Integrated sensor is structure. You know, having that mindset of how do I get down to just the essence of the problem and try and prove that as quickly as possible and then iterate. We took that to heart. And so we said, okay, well, let's start with what can we do on a tabletop to prove that this works. What can we do at 30 feet, like in a slightly free-fly test? And we said, okay, well, what's the soonest we can shoot a drone out of the air? It doesn't have to be at 1,000 feet. It doesn't have to be at long distances. Just prove that, like, you know, it can be hovering there in the air, and you're shooting it down under something close to real-world conditions, and then you can scale from there. And we were able to do that about six to nine months, depending on where I start the clock. About six months, actually. From there, it was, okay, well, now how do we scale it? How do we, we did this at, you know, this many feet? How do we do this at 90 feet? How do we do this at, you know, 900 feet? You know, yada, 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 right? And I'm intentionally being obtuse with the numbers because they get a little sensitive. It's proving that you can scale the concept over time. That's something that Silicon Valley has been able to do, taking minimum viable products, turning them into minimum marketable products, and then turning them into... Develop products that we use every day through agile development. And that's, that's an area where I think aerospace and defense can learn companies like SpaceX. Uh, they do it every day. I think it's just embracing that same mentality and not being afraid to fail. I think the big companies, even if they say they embrace people taking risks and failures, they really don't. There's asymmetric benefit at the big companies to if you, if you lose them $50 million on a boondoggle, uh, you almost certainly will get fired. But if you use it to create a new technology or something, eh, you know, maybe you get a pat on the head or something. I know a lot of engineering fellows and stuff that made their careers on crazy ideas. At times, it can feel that way. It can feel a little stifling.
1: There's a lot of talk about dual-use innovation, so taking things from commercial. And we talk about it on the show pretty frequently, taking something that's proven commercially and then bringing it over to DoD. What your explanation made me think of is the concept of dual-use frameworks. So what what is... The commercial world doing, you know, how do they get talent? How do they approach clean sheet design? Like, how do they go and find customers or funding? What are they doing that's enabling innovation to happen in months, not years, and then transporting that over into the defense industry?
0: Yeah. So, I think one thing that you see in defense that oftentimes, or that you see in commercial that you don't see in defense, rather, is this idea of cross domain architectures and product line architectures and having just sort of one product that you're constantly iterating and instantiating on. And like you see it with, you know, something like an iPhone, right? Where, you know, there's this this uh, common design framework and, you know, they swap out the heads so that you can get a 3D camera or a LiDAR or more memory or less memory. And they're sort of extensible and they embody a lot of quality attributes. And a lot of that actually, even on the hardware side, was inspired from software. There's something called the Software Inst- Engineering Institute that has taught a lot of these principles for a while. I think like getting into the idea that you know a product can't be all things at all time and satisfy everyone's needs, but you can make something that's you know focused to pretty well serve the needs of most of the customers and then tailor it a little bit to really well to, to serve the needs of lots of customers specifically. And like you, know, you look at how they build cars. One thing that we've kind of seen the last few years, Toyota and others do this well, whether it's a Camry or a Forerunner, they're almost built on almost entirely the same drivetrain. It's just swap in this engine, swap out that engine, swap in this transmission, this infotainment system, do these software options. And Tesla kind of epitomizes that, where literally it's almost the same car no matter what you buy. And they just turn on and off the features with software. And it's just, it's a software defined vehicle. And I think defense could learn a lot from that. There were some attempts to do that with things like the F-35 that didn't quite work out so well. And part of it was that um, they, their risk management framework didn't allow much wiggle room. And so I have one friend who worked early on in the F-35 program. He tells the story of being walked into a, a conference room that seemed like it was half a football field long. And from wall to wall, it's Gantt charts. And they literally have a million unique IDs of tasks in there. And they're saying they can predict if this task here, task 1025, moves by three days, what it's going to do to the schedule on the other side. And it's like, yeah, right. No, you can't. Right. Like it's, it's an exercise in absurdity. And it kind of brings to mind a quote from Juan Luis Borges about when the cartographers make the map so detailed that it starts to to uh, cover the, uh, the terrain that it was meant to depict. And that's a common problem that we see in defense is that they say, well, the way that we're going to overcome risk is by analyzing the snot out of it, rather than saying, well, we're going to quickly look at what we think our biggest risks are and try and aggressively burn those down as quickly as possible and then iterate. So I think that's one difference. The other difference you see in commercial is, frankly, they iterate a lot more. It's much easier when a new iPhone comes out every two years versus when a new fighter jet comes out every 40 years, right? They just get more thoughts on goal, and so they get better at it. And so I think finding ways to make defense programs match those timelines better uh, and being able to embrace new technologies and not have everything caught up in a too-big-to-fail major defense acquisition program where if a new disruptive technology comes along, uh, you know, you're not going to have the hobgoblins coming out of the woodwork to try and kill it because they need to preserve the trillion dollar program they've already thrown money at forever. I think that that's the solution.
1: I'd love to see that develop in the, just the past few years, really, with the DIU and then, of course, like HalfWorks and SoftWorks and really pushing a culture of innovation starting to really blossom inside of DoD. I'm very hopeful. <laughs> I'm very optimistic of where that's going, but it's nice to see. You had the success, and then you moved over to Spartan. Can you tell me a little bit about that story, that transition? I'd really like to get into Spartan.
0: We just had a kid, so I was home um, alone a lot, and I was working with a, a group of other entrepreneurs trying to get a venture studio started called the Dangerous Venture Studio. And we had a few kind of crazy ideas, but nothing was really kind of catching fire, other than you know we were getting some decent consulting jobs out of it and uh, I had a fr- uh, an old mentor of mine who had stayed in touch with dr Theodja Sabotoglu uh, one of the foremost experts in an area of signal processing called super resolution techniques and he calls me up and says so Nathan I've been doing some consulting work since I retired from Raytheon for some automotive radar companies and I think I have a way to build a uh, automotive radar that has five times the resolution with a quarter of the parts and I wasn't exactly a subject matter expert in automotive electronics, but what I do know is that when you're building millions of cars, if you can reduce the COGS cost of a radar significantly through software, that's going to be very attractive. And so I started diving into the space and, you know, trying to figure out how real his idea is. And it turned out that, you know, first off, radar has been ubiquitous to cars for, you know, at least on the high end models, at least the last 10 years and really starting to take off in the next, in the last five years as they move into uh, what's called level two and level three autonomy. So you're full self driving, automated emergency braking, lane keeping assistance, uh, automated driving assistance systems or ADAS systems. But what I noticed is that these radars are very much treated as single function devices. You turn them on, they do one thing all the time. If you need them to do something else, it's literally pop the cover and change a jumper because the intention is to put that radar in a different part of the car or something. Uh, to the extent where you'd even see like them using the exact same radar, but it just had a different jumper in a different place, right? So it had a different software load that it was automatically loaded with. And we said, well, if you could use uh, what's called electronic phobiation, this idea that you know the radar could could look at different rates in different places based on what's seeing dynamically in the scene, uh, that augments its capability. And then you add the super resolution features that we were talking about with the technology that the had developed, and suddenly You know, you have radars that they may not be able to get the same resolution as a LiDAR, but a LiDAR costs several thousand dollars. Radars cost fifty to a hundred dollars. You can make commercial radar that could do almost as good as LiDAR, which means for 90% of applications, you don't need. What was interesting about Spartan is it was a swords to plowshares kind of story in the sense that we're taking these design philosophies and kind of signal processing that was really developed in defense and adapting it for commercial applications. And so I, I used to joke, I build stuff that. I hope, never gets used. Missiles, things like that, to kind of defend the country. You know, it's the whole civis pacum para if you wish for peace prepare for war thing. But with Spartan, we're expecting our, what we use to be used every day to save lives. We've developed a radar based on some of that software called Hoplo uh, that we sell for commercial vehicle fleets. One kind of disturbing fact, something like two people are killed every week in this country by trash trucks. From them driving through, you know, barreling through alleyways and coming around blind corners and stuff. It's a very large, cumbersome vehicle. And so safety systems are critical to bringing that countdown because the the driver simply cannot see everything around him. And if you install cameras, you know, the cameras don't really give you alarms. They're not sufficient. So you know, we have our commercial vehicle radar that we, you know, we have some like 30 pilot customers or something that are out with that. And it's actually available for sale today. We're doing uh, small-scale sales to some fleets. Uh, we have our software we're partnered with that, a number of different tier one uh, providers in our softwares and mule vehicles being demonstrated at OEMs today. So we've managed to really push forward with some pretty remarkable technology very quickly and getting, getting it out there where it can save lives.
1: I've listened to a number of interviews that you've been on and a recurrent theme was your ability to attract talent and develop talent. And that's resulted recently in you stepping away from Spartan. Is that correct?
0: So about three months ago, Uh, I brought on a friend of mine, Dr. Matt Markle, as president of the company. He's um, uh, formerly the head of Radar at Waymo and was vice president of uh, Radar at Ghost Autonomy. But before that, he was a principal fellow at Raytheon, which there's only like 40 of them in the company, which is when I worked with him. Matt's incredibly talented. He actually wrote a textbook on the space. And I think one of the things that happens when you're a founder more than once is that you start to separate. I think there's a real tendency the first time you're shoved into a leadership role to somehow say, I am a CEO. This is what I do, rather than I'm the founder of the company. And that's, you know, and I'm the owner of the company to some extent. And that's much more important than what title I happen to have on it and what I'm doing on a daily basis. So I believe very much in finding the right person to do the job at a particular stage. And for the stage that Spartan was entering in, uh, where we're trying to scale production to thousands of radars, and you know, get out to fleets of millions with our software. Matt was the perfect fit for that, and the timing just worked out well. So I said the best thing to do here is to put him in the seat. We'll try it out for a few months and make sure he's a fit. He's been doing wonderfully. Made the decision that you know, hey, it's it's time for me to step back. I'm still chairman of the of the board. I'm still involved uh, strategically, but you know, let let him really take the reins of operating the company. And I've been very impressed with uh, the results that, that he's been able to do. I think everybody's dream is to sort of be able to pick your own successor and have them kind of share your mindset and vision. And that's, that's exactly what it is. I don't really treat these companies like uh, like it's one of my children. It's a vehicle for bringing a technology into the world that can make the shareholders excellent returns and create a great culture and team that can continue to, to innovate and push the envelope. It's not mine. It's you know, we all work for the company, right? We don't, I don't kind of see myself as the company is me and I am the company. It's not my mindset at
1: all. Yeah. I asked that because for a lot of founders, this is the dream. They just have a very difficult time even finding a co-founder or scaling that initial team to get rock stars to join and help and mature an idea or mature their, say their sales strategy or their operations. And you've, continued to be able to do that, you know, on a world-class level. So it's just interesting to see.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think with me, like the co-founders and all that, I mean, I I always want to be the dumbest person in the room, kind of how I look at it, which means I need to, you, you have to have the humility to have intense self-awareness about your strengths and weaknesses. And I'm pretty good about Figuring out who needs to be on the bus and what roles and then finding them a seat. The joke is, is that the difference between an introvert engineer and an extrovert engineer is the extrovert engineer looks at your shoes when he's talking to you. Yes, I was always, you know, in this situation where uh, I would meet a lot of people in these big companies and I was a, a section manager and stuff and I'm pretty good about identifying you know kind of unique talents and the mindset kind of a certain i don't know if i would say dissatisfaction or consternation or a longing to make things better where the person's always never quite satisfied with the status quo uh and, and has an itch to make things better that's that's a big part of it and i've been very fortunate to have some good co-founders that have come along along the way both at epirus and spartan we Group two teams now one one to forty and then this one to to fifty five or so before we hand it before I hand it off the reins so picking the right people to be part of it, especially that core ten or fifteen people that sort of sets the company outright is absolutely critical.
1: Now you said dissatisfaction so I just want to jump on this point really quickly. It's just an interesting thing about Nathan for everybody that's listening. You you've run for state assembly twice, okay. And win, lose, or draw—that's got to be a, a very interesting experience that not very many people have. It's something that's on your CV that there's only a handful of people in the whole U.S. that have that. Politics aside, I see that through line of dissatisfaction. It's like looking out at something and saying, "Well, you—you you said hubris, but it's a little bit of hubris to say, you know, maybe I'm not the smartest person in the world or the smartest person in the room, but I feel like I can change." something. I can change something about my community or I can start something or I can get this idea going. And do you see that kind of through line between your desire earlier to run and then your desire to run startups?
0: You have to have that pioneering spirit and kind of that that sense of, you know, waterlust, maybe it's the right way to put it. Somebody who's more than happy to sit in the same program for 30 years and, you know, do the exact same thing is probably going to hate being at a startup because everything's chaotic and it's unstructured and, you know, there's a lot of triage involved and a lot of it just accepting that there's going to be brush fires you can't put out because there's more important things to deal with. Whereas somebody you know, like when I was in big aerospace, I was changing programs about every year or two because I'd get to the point where, OK, I've kind of maximized my contribution here. And either I can wait around for five years to become the program manager or I can go do something else and learn something else. It's that curiosity of, well, what's around that corner? What could be different? Why does it have to be that way? And that was kind of one thing that drove me to politics is, well, why does the state have to operate this way? Why do we keep electing these same sorts of people that keep passing dysfunctional laws? Maybe I can change the conversation. And early on in there, Joe Lonsdale and I started a nonprofit called California Common Sense. That was trying to do exactly that, where we were using basically big data tools to unpack and take apart the California state budget and try and find examples of waste or call for reform, et cetera. And I've been involved with a couple of efforts like that since. I don't know. I, uh, there, there's not a lot of money in it, at least not for me. So for kids and I just, you know, the people always want to pay me to do the engineering. They didn't really want to pay me to
1: listen to my political
0: opinions or write laws. So I kind of hug it up about
1: 10 years ago well maybe we could use a few more engineers in congress or at the state level but that's a whole different conversation nathan i've really appreciated this conversation thanks for coming on the show do you have some parting words of wisdom for our audience
0: i would say that if you feel yourself having that urge to do something entrepreneurial and go create something give it a try you know take the first steps one of my one of my favorite lines from the bible is is the story of abraham where god says you know get up and <laughs> and go to this place uh, in a distant land that I'm going to tell you is your promised land. And he had nothing to work on. He had never seen it before. He didn't know what it was. He was just going on blind trust that if you put one foot in front of the other, you'd get to something special. And I think you really have to have that uh, to really get everything that you can out of life. If you're happy sort of sitting there, satisfied being in one place, doing one thing all the time, you may not be living up to your full potential. I think oftentimes our own doubt of our full potential is is what holds us back. So I would just urge everybody, give it a try. My old boss had the perfect advice on this when I was at Boeing. He said, well, you go quit and start a startup as CEO and get funded and everything. Worst case scenario, you come back here and they'll give you two promotions because they'll go, he has startup experience. And, And if you want to give it a try, you can call me if you have some crazy idea i can i can you can reach me it's uh, nathan at com or others i hear a lot of pitches from younger less experienced entrepreneurs or people that are just getting started i'm happy to be a sounding board
1: nathan thank you so much for appearing on the show i really appreciate it this has been the startup defense